You're listening to Thoughts and Feels, the podcast that brings academic scholarship to bear on popular culture and everyday experience. In each episode, I sit down with a scholar to talk about what interests them in order to discover its connections to the world around us. I'm your host, Tim Weatherspoon. In this first episode, I sit down with Dr. Liz Jackson, Assistant Professor of Education at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Jackson has recently presented work about Last Week Tonight with John Oliver that explores the use of humor in moral education. Dr. Jackson points out both the potential benefits. This is going to open a lot more creativity for that community to engage in dialogue. And the potential downfalls. Some people were laughing at the wrong part of the jokes. Of using humor in moral education. We also discuss the John Oliver effect and question whether changes in the world can be ascribed directly to the comedian. I mean, we'd have to have the people in charge of making these changes in these corporations say, well, I watched John Oliver's show, and then I thought, gee, he was right. That was so incisive of a critique. Or indirectly, through the dialogue he may produce in his audience. A lot of these people have done things that have made a real-world impact. She is critical of Last Week Tonight, arguing that in this case, Humor may serve to alleviate the viewer from complicity in social ills and responsibility for social change, instead of inspiring them to action. If you just share the clip of him doing something on Facebook, then you've done something. We discussed issues arising from ignorance. Where does the questioning end? And where do we say, okay, no matter what, we have a problem? Leaping to action. I'm not sure what the John Oliver effect is in this case. Self-righteousness. They read an article that there aren't any black women academics in Great Britain. They don't have that same moral self-righteousness because they're not sort of guided to that simplistic view of the world. And seeing oneself as better than others. The point of this is not to educate people, but to say, look how foolish those other people are. This is my first podcast production and I'm still working at getting some of the kinks out. So please forgive some rough edits and some poor audio quality. So Liz, thanks for coming on the show. I was really interested in your paper about John Oliver. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is what are some of the potential benefits of using humor in an educational context? Okay, well, first let me thank you for inviting me onto the show. So the benefits of using humor in education there's a few different potential benefits. It's interesting because historically, humor was really looked down on, and it was thought that it simply was not even moral to to be humorous, to make jokes, or anything like that. Interesting. Was, yeah, the idea was that humor uh, was just about making fun of other people. So it was considered to be not as virtuous as other forms of communication and expression. However, we see a shift in modern history to, I think the best example is the court jester, somebody who is in line with and sponsored by uh, the king or by the people in charge. Sure. And that person is making jokes. And those jokes might actually be uh, making fun of the powers that be. It might be making fun of people in the king's court. And the idea is that the court jester has to not say anything too offensive or too harsh, but that actually the court jester can say more critical things than someone else in society. 
So a court jester can actually suggest something quite critical, but it's okay because it's just a joke. I see. So humor gives us some way to turn a lens on ourselves that's maybe more critical, but it provides a distance at the same time because of the joke. That's right. In education, people will use humor to help students take a different perspective or maybe look at something from a different viewpoint. And it is considered by educators that humor can help you think more creatively, think outside of the box about yourself and your life without necessarily causing a major disturbance or disruption. A lot of observational humor makes you sit back and think, well, that is something funny that happens, and I haven't really thought of it that way. But it's not making a very strong critical stand in and of itself. It's just kind of suggesting, hey, why don't we take a few minutes and think about this from a different viewpoint? I see. So when you're talking about programs like Last Week Tonight, or even The Daily Show or The Colbert Report, it seems these programs, they're trying to be didactic in some way. They want some moral education about social justice to come across. They want to sort of criticize a right-wing viewpoint, also through the use of humor. So does that use of humor become more complicated when the content has a moral significance? I think it definitely can become more complicated uh, because we do think of ourselves as actors in a moral world. So it's going to make you think about yourself and not just about others when humor has that didactic content. Okay. So firstly, it, it helps you to reflect on your own role in a situation. But there can also be a challenge. So ideally, you're thinking about your role in a situation. You're thinking, gee, this is a bad situation. But this doesn't always happen. Humor and education also have something else in common that's really interesting. In a classroom, different people in that classroom are going to have different experiences of the same lesson or the same uh, activity in a classroom. So I'm sure you know as a teacher, uh, when you're teaching students, one student's going to come away and say, that was the best class I ever took. Another student's going to say, well, I didn't learn a thing in that class. That's certainly true, isn't it? Yes, I think I've actually had in recent teaching evaluations, the comments, on the one hand, I learned nothing. And on the other hand, I learned so much. Uh, so with humor, this means that people are going to find different parts of a joke funny. So just like some students are going to pay attention to the theory, some students are going to pay attention to the example, there's different layers within humor that people can look at. Can you give me some example? Sure. So my colleague, Chris Mayo, uh, who's written quite a bit about this, she discusses the Dave Chappelle show. The show is very popular, and he made a lot of jokes about race, and he's a black American. Uh, just to give one example, he had a joke that was a white supremacist, a kind of Nazi, who was blind and who was also black American. A kind of absurd case, isn't it? Yes, completely absurd. But you're imagining this case and he's acting it out. Uh, so Dave Chappelle has said that he quits doing his show, even though it was wildly popular, because he thought some people were laughing at the wrong part of the joke. If we take the case of the blind, black, white supremacists, for example, some people might laugh at the racist messages of that character that Dave Chappelle is performing, 
whereas other people might laugh at the absurdity of the situation. And we can think of this with a lot of comedic performances. For example, some people thought Stephen Colbert was sending those right-wing messages when he was pretending to be a right-wing journalist. Uh, some people thought that was who he was and were appreciating the messages he was sending as that character. For others, they were laughing at a different kind of uh, model. Right. So instead of lampooning a Fox News sort of correspondent or pundit, he is actually championing that sort of idea. Right. So just like education, when it comes to humor, every person's going to receive a different message. Not everyone's the same in a diverse audience. So people are going to get different moral lessons from comedy, the same way that you're going to get different lessons about science in a physics class. Sure. So I think most of the audience for John Oliver's show or for programs like The Daily Show, they are students of social justice, they are interested in problems in the world, and they might find those problems inaccessible to them. They may not feel like they have power to do much about it, or they may feel overwhelmed by how horribly the sky is falling, or they may even have guilt over their own privilege and their own situation. How does humor provide a way around those difficulties? Or is it the case that humor actually plays into those difficulties? For some people, it's going to open a new space to think about something in a new way. And actually, some theorists who've looked at humor have looked at humorous affects. They've looked at the feeling of humor. And they say that there's something democratizing in that experience, that effective experience of humor, to be in an audience and to feel like you're all laughing about something together. And the idea here is that laughter is something you can't necessarily control. When you're laughing, it's often a spontaneous response. So some theorists will say that entering that space and realizing that you're with other people in that space, that's going to create awareness. I'm not the only one. Everyone in this audience thinks that the situation is absurd at a gut level. So there's an idea here that this is going to spark a different kind of awareness or critical consciousness within a community. And this is going to open a lot more creativity for that community to engage in dialogue. However, uh, we certainly also know that people can laugh about something and then go to the next thing. You can say, okay, that joke was funny, but I don't really want to think about this serious situation. It's a good thing I had a laugh. Let's go do something else now. You describe humor as potentially very positive. I'm wondering if that effect happens with shows like John Oliver. Is there any metric of impact that his show has going beyond discussions at the water cooler or likes on people's Facebook newsfeed? It's so hard to come up with that cause and effect relationship for a number of reasons. But there are some people who've done some work on this. I think one of the reasons I was actually first attracted to looking critically at John Oliver's show was that I noticed in a lot of media coverage of John Oliver, there's discussions of him having a real world impact. And a number of major uh, journalistic sources, Time, Huffington Post, Mother Jones, a lot of sort of liberal-leaning or left-leaning media sources were describing a John Oliver effect. What's the John Oliver effect? So after some of his stunts, there was changes in what some corporations did. 
So they say that the response to John Oliver making fun of Budweiser or making fun of the Miss America Corporation, that he makes this joke, and then later on, there's some change in that corporation's behavior. And from a critical and and empirical standpoint, I want to really question whether there's a cause and effect there, because there's other things happening in the world besides John Oliver's show. That's right. But there are some people who've noticed the correlation and so tried to describe a causation to the correlation. Just because one thing happens after another doesn't mean that there's a cause and effect relationship between those. Although there is the potential for that occurring. That's right. I mean, we'd have to have the people in charge of making these changes in these corporations say, well, I watched John Oliver's show And then I thought, gee, he was right. That was so incisive of a critique. So I changed the corporate practices. I mean, you could also make the case more indirectly. And you could say that out of the greater public awareness, there became a public pressure on these corporations. That's right. Is there evidence of that? No, this empirical work, I mean, to my knowledge, it hasn't been done. But that's not to say that people aren't working on it right now. But nothing like this has been published. When it comes to a John Oliver effect, uh, that there could be an indirect effect where, for example, John Oliver says something, the public picks that up, and then the public puts pressure on an organization or a corporation for change. Uh, I've been influenced quite a bit by the research conducted by Megan Bowler, uh, which looked at the democratic impact of John Stewart's show and Stephen Colbert's show. Okay. So in Megan's research, She studied sort of the network between self-identified fans of Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert and the leadership and organization of different kinds of networks for democracy, social justice, uh, democratic media, the rally against insanity, which was sort of sponsored by Stewart and Colbert, which was actual rallies all around the country. So she studied these networks and... What she said was, these people are not just sitting home at watching TV. So some of us, we just sit around, we laugh at the jokes, and then we go eat dinner or whatever else we're going to do that day. Right. Maybe I post a clip on Facebook and move on and get on with my life. Right. They call that the armchair warrior. A lot of us who are concerned with the educative impact of media are are wary of this armchair warrior who says, okay, I laughed, and that's good enough, or I shared the joke, and that's good enough. But in any case, what Megan Bowler has said is that a lot of these people have done things that have made a real-world impact in civic engagement in political processes all over the United States, and for that matter, uh, around the world, because Stuart and Colbert and some of the events and activities that they helped lead and facilitate became sort of global events in the context of Occupy movements and protest movements against corporate influence in major cities around the world. That sounds very positive. But in your paper about John Oliver, you make several critiques of the sort of rhetoric that he uses, and you argue that there are ways in which his humor actually isolates the audience from the social justice concern. So I wanted to go through some of those critiques that you make and see if we can shed some more light on that. The first thing you talk about is claiming ignorance 
where the audience may be just unaware of the social justice concern. So do people who enjoy social privilege, are they ignorant of social justice concerns? If they are ignorant, shouldn't admitting that ignorance be an important first step to becoming a better person? So firstly, are people who enjoy social privilege ignorant of social justice concerns? I think most people who study this area would say that they tend to be, that it's sort of a natural condition of experiencing social privilege is obliviousness to that social privilege. Peggy McIntosh talks about an invisible knapsack of privileges. So she says that one should imagine if they are in America, if they're white, if they're uh, physically able, if they're Christian, if they're a man, if they are straight. In this case, that when you're walking around the, on the street, you have an invisible knapsack of privileges. And some of these things are big things, and some of these things are little things. But they all come together to represent what, what privilege is, which is invisible to people who have those privileges. So something very simple like, if you hurt yourself and you have a cut, you can go to a drugstore and you can get a bandage, and the bandage is supposed to look like your skin color. So that's something that people don't really necessarily think about. I think admitting ignorance is, it makes sense that that's a first step, of course. And all the time, I think, in life, we're discovering things that we didn't know before. And some of those things are about ourselves and our relationships with other people in the world. And that's natural. But what is quite interesting to look at is the way that admitting ignorance becomes not just a first step, but it somehow grows into about 20 different steps before people go to an ideal second step of saying, okay, this is a problematic situation. This is something that we would like to do something about. Once they realize the extent of their ignorance, maybe it's overwhelming to them. Or at that point, they just don't know what the second step is. Theorists will say that the next move will be to sort of understand the ignorance. But this process can become endless. So from a psychological perspective, this can be seen as a kind of psychological defense mechanism to say, I still don't know enough about this situation to be able to do anything about it. First, I'll get more information and then I'll do something about it. The sort of George W. Bush outlook on climate change is, oh, the science is it in, we can't do anything about this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's still people trying to, to figure it out. And, and there's a really just a gray area here where we have to say, okay, when is there enough consensus to move to the next point? Uh, so I have an example of this from my personal experience. I remember Recently, I posted something on my Facebook feed, uh, a news article about black female academics in Great Britain. And it said something, I can't remember exactly now, but it said something like 2% of professors in Great Britain are black women. Wow. And I thought that this is something bad. This is a shocking statistic. Right. So my first inclination was to think, this is probably true. I mean, maybe you shouldn't jump to conclusions. But if this is true, this is something bad. And I thought it could be true. Because based on my knowledge of higher education and race and gender inequities in higher education, it didn't seem that problematic to me. So I put it on Facebook. And indeed, I think the statistics in the article were great. 
But what I noticed was, as soon as I posted the article, several male academics wanted to know more details about the article. For example, uh, are they talking about only full professors? Or are they talking about assistant and associate professors?、Uh, why should that even really matter? On the one hand, it could be looking for a justification to say the status quo isn't that bad. So that's concerning to me. But on another level, where does the questioning end, and where do we say, okay, no matter what, we have a problem? We can endlessly discuss whether or not we have a problem. So this is where admitting ignorance can become not the first step, but it can sort of. You know, take over the whole thing. I think that really points out when we feel ignorant about the situation, it can be not the just the first step, but even almost the last one. Right, because then you can just say, "Well, we don't have enough information about this to do anything." In John Oliver's show, he frequently points out things that his audience may be ignorant of. Some of it is really trivia night sort of stuff. But some other stuff may be more intense than that. How does this serve to bring a distance between the audience and the concern that he's talking about? So when he makes jokes about ignorance, as you say, he tends to focus on things that, for Americans, maybe are not the most critical things. As sort of sort of details and trivia level things, such as saying this is Paraguay on the map, but actually he's showing Uruguay. So here he's trying to sort of tease people, and actually, you could say from a certain perspective that that teasing is something good because people laugh and say, "Yes, we have a problem with ignorance about world geography in the country." So that can be productive. But what I find interesting is that when it comes to more serious issues, he tends to ask the audience to rely on him and to rely on the information that he gives as a kind of appeal to authority. Right, he's like, you don't know about this. Let me tell you about it. Yes, and then he goes on to reveal how horrible some situation is. That's right, and and he might even start the segment by saying, maybe you didn't know this because we didn't know it until we did this research, or you know, we found this out, and and we we're just sort of open-minded people trying to figure things out on your behalf. So there's a risk there. That John Oliver's show is sort of the horizon for learning about the world. Which is something concerning from an educational view. If people are watching the show to be educated, this reveals a lack of capacity for people to educate themselves. People in education have been trying to teach people information and, and to teach people skills. I think it's problematic if a comedian who is making money by telling jokes is a source of information. I think this enables ignorance for us to say this is okay. I watched John Oliver today. I've done my good deed for today. That's that's deeply concerning to me. I want to move on to the next criticism. So John Oliver is always performing different stunts.、Uh, he created a church to highlight problems with tax exemption. The Church of Perpetual Exemption. And also, he had a piece about the refugee crisis. And at the end of this piece. The payoff for us is that he has engaged some soap opera stars to shout out to a teenage refugee who is a big fan of their show. I'm not sure how this is helping anyone. I don't think that it is helping anyone, and I think that this is a a clear example where we're saying just trying to figure out something is enough.、Uh, just 
deciding that something is problematic, that's enough. There's nothing more that we can do. And in a way, this is very disabling to the audience to end there by saying, well, I did something. And you can feel like if you just share the clip of him doing something on Facebook, then you've done something. But it's even worse than that in the case of the refugee girl. I find it very problematic that it's in John Oliver's interest to do these stunts. He gets a lot of publicity for doing the stunts. And I'm not sure what the John Oliver effect is in this case when it comes to uh, doing a single thing to help any refugee. The Daily Show and Colbert Report, they also had their various stunts. I think of Colbert Report's Super PAC, which highlighted the open doors for money to play into politics these days. In what ways are John Oliver's stunts and leaps to action different? That's a good question. And I actually really had to admit to myself as I uh, developed my analysis, as I collected sort of my data and tried to analyze and code that data in terms of understanding John Oliver's stunts, in terms of the moral lessons or uh, morally problematic features of them. When I was doing that work, I also really had to go back to uh, Stephen Colbert and John Stewart and observe that actually they're all guilty of these things to a certain extent. They're all conducting leaps to action by making sort of joking stunts, as you say. And I think something that all three shows also have in common is that they all do what I call uh, being better than, uh, showing sort of some exceptionality of the audience. In comedy, one should play with moral positions, like David Chappelle with his blind, black, white supremacist. People should be mocking different perspectives. So it's really hard to say, okay, is this person doing the bad thing? Or is this person making fun of doing the bad thing? Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? Yes, it is. When I compare John Oliver as an individual comedian to John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, one thing that I observed is that John Oliver tends to have a quite a self-righteous tone. And people have criticized John Stewart for this as well recently, that John Stewart can be a bit morally self-righteous. And this is something I look out for as an educator that's interested in social justice and in a theorist in this field, is this air of self-righteousness doesn't always work in a classroom. And I think it's problematic for a comedian to claim a sort of moral authority I don't like the idea of people having a, a moral standpoint when it comes to what John Oliver says. And then when they uh, read a newspaper article or they read an article that there aren't any black women academics in Great Britain, they don't have that same moral self-righteousness because they're not sort of guided to that simplistic view of the world. And another part of this that's interesting to me is thinking about these three figures in terms of a media feedback cycle. What's the media feedback cycle? This is something that Stuart Hall has discussed, particularly in terms of researching television as a form of entertainment or news. John Oliver is not just sort of out there. John Oliver is not the same as someone on YouTube or someone who makes a podcast where people were just attracted to the message. Comedians aren't like street preachers and people decide which one to go up to. There's a sort of media machine behind that. And there are people who've been doing research saying, okay, what do people want to know? What are people's attitudes? Just as a comedian will test out their jokes, and certainly before 
Oliver or Stewart or Colbert got their own TV shows, they spent years as comedians where they got a sense for the kind of jokes that their kind of audience would like. So I really like thinking about these people, not as individuals who are good or bad, but in terms of the audiences that are reflected by their popularity. So it's not just that John Oliver is self-righteous, it's that there are a huge number of Americans who wants to watch a British comedian be morally self-righteous and that they enjoy that. So it's interesting to me that that self-righteousness is a popular view now. This makes me wonder if what audiences want today is different from what they wanted in the past. If we can say John Oliver has more of a morally self-righteous tone, he's a bit more of like a missionary of social justice. Mainstream media has described John Oliver primarily as a kind of missionary, as a kind of hero who's doing good work. So if that's the way that he's being received, what does this say about the moral condition of mainstream uh, media consumers today? Yeah, I'm not sure what it says. I agree that these stunts or these media events, they just really provide the audience with some way to feel like they themselves have done something. And as you talk about his self-righteousness, I totally agree. Whenever I watch last week tonight, I feel like it's like watching a sporting event or even a televangelism program, especially when he was making fun of televangelists through the Church of Perpetual Exemption. When I watch the show, I feel like Oliver and his audience, they're on the same team. They're the chosen few who are set apart to do good in the world. Is that correct? And what does that team look like? Well, I'm not sure that it's... It's the winning team, but I do agree with you that this is something he's trying to do. This is another sort of strategy of evading ideas of moral complicity, which I've attributed to John Oliver. And I think we can certainly also say is true to a certain extent for Stephen Colbert and John Stewart's this idea that we are better than other people, that we're the good guys. In this sort of discourse, when we think, okay, I'm better than you, is quite typical. My question for you is more about what is the purpose of that team? Why do we make these teams? I mean, it's certainly an ideological move. Maybe it's just human nature to try to develop a coalition based on what are perceived to be common interests. It's some kind of tribalism that does just end up getting reflected in media. When we watch the show, we join his tribe, to use your words. And his tribe is the good guys in the world. And the problems in the world, they don't come from us. Is that correct? I think that that's the message that's being sent, yes. John Oliver has one stunt he calls, Is This Still a Thing? And in this, he shows bad things. And I think it's very rare that the bad things are done by people that are part of our tribe. I think it tends to be things that people in the other tribe have done. Absolutely. When I think about the recent episode that discussed science reporting and sort of morning talk shows, I feel like there's no Today Show audience member who is watching last week tonight with John Oliver. And so if there's a problem with science reporting, 
is not with the person who watches last week tonight. It's with those ignorant people who would watch the Today Show in the morning. Absolutely. And this is where it becomes just kind of making fun of people, if you think about it from that perspective. And I think that's a perfectly rational thing to think is that people who watch the Today Show or the morning show are not watching John Oliver. So then the point of this is not to educate people, but to say, look how foolish those other people are. It's an act of making fun of people. Particularly, you can find some contradictions. So People in the liberal tribe, we tend to assume that we're nice, that we're not prejudiced, that we're not judgmental and cruel to people based on things that they can't help or based on things that are irrelevant from a moral perspective. But you can sometimes see this and you can see it across uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert as well as John Oliver. For example, jokes about people being ugly or fat or having questionable gender or sexuality in some way. There are still jokes like this that you can find, and even just sexist jokes, jokes about women being ugly. Uh, you can still see these jokes if you look for them, which suggests, okay, our tribe is not necessarily the good tribe. It's just sort of stereotypes. White liberals are more into running and riding bikes than conservatives. So that really highlights how just being part of that tribe is not good enough because we may paint these labels about our values as a tribe, but the reality of our experience in the world may not always conform to those labels. That's right. Yes. I find that your overall critique is not so much that Oliver embraces some problematic social ideals. As we conversed, we said, we are also you and I in the liberal tribe. But your critique is more on a method of delivery. You argue that his method of delivery sort of relieves the viewer from responsibility for the world's ills or complicity in the situation. And it places the blame on a few bad apples, those members of the other tribe. What is an alternative discourse that would not have that same tendency? What are some of the characteristics of that discourse? even a humorous discourse that encourages participants to engage in their own social responsibility? It's a good question. And I think when we think about the tribes and the bad apples and the individual examples, I think a shift that I would like to see, comedy that I think would be more effective, is one that looks at these things a bit more holistically and systematically. Because when we look at things on an individual level and we say, okay, we know that that person did something bad. We know that those people are jerks. This makes it seem like we're not part of the problem and that other people need to fix the problems that they have, but that there's not a problem that we all have, that there isn't something that we can say is wrong with the community and with the society. I totally agree with you. And another aspect of this is even at the individual level, there aren't people who are perfect and people who are terrible. All of us have our challenges and flaws. And if we say, okay, we're more enlightened than those people, we are ignoring opportunities to work on being better people ourselves. Great. Well, Liz, thanks for coming on my show today. My guest again today is Dr. Liz Jackson. She is Assistant Professor of Education at the University of Hong Kong, 
and the author of Muslims and Islam in U.S. Education, Reconsidering Multiculturalism. Thanks so much. Thank you. The website for Thoughts and Feels is drtimweatherspoon.com slash podcast. There you can find links to people and articles discussed in this episode. You can subscribe to Thoughts and Feels on iTunes or Stitcher. And always, thank you for listening.